0: Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland.
1: I'm Lori Gum.
0: And these are The Q-Files. At the end of our last episode, after the cleaned and hatchet-scarred skulls of her father, Andrew Borden, and her mother, Abby Borden, were paraded about the courtroom by the prosecution during her 1893 trial, the ever self-possessed, calm, cool, and collected, Elizabeth Borden, fainted.
1: The courtroom crowd issued a collective gasp as a deputy sheriff ran to her side and gently tried to shake her awake. But later, he said, he might as well have shaken a pump handle. She was out cold. But not for long. Reverend W. W. Jubb, her pastor, from the Central Congregational Church, had been by her side constantly during the trial, and he rushed to her and administered smelling salts that actually had been in Lisbeth's own pocket. She came to immediately, although groggily. She then laid her head on the railing in front of her for a moment and then drank some water she was offered. Quickly, she stiffened her countenance, regained her composure, and then glanced at the prosecution table as if to say, well, what are you waiting for? The trial would resume less than five minutes after her initial collapse. The skulls, for the moment, were taken from the courtroom.
0: The Fall River Daily Globe would announce in big, bold, sensational print that Lizzie Borden, the sphinx of coolness, who has so often been accused of never manifesting a feminine feeling, had fainted. It seemed this was finally the proof that she was indeed a woman after all. The gruesome theatrical stunt carried forth by the prosecution seemed to have backfired badly. The press and general public sympathy for Lisbeth swelled to a crescendo. Joseph Howard, who covered the trial for the Boston Globe and the New York Recorder, would write this What must she not endure as Lizzie Borden, the target for every eye? No wonder she fainted. The only wonder is that she ever recovered. Julian Ralph would say, Whatever she may have done, she is a woman, a being who for 32 years of her life pursued the quiet and sheltered routine as a maiden of a good family. Others wondered, hideous as the skulls are to casual observers, but what have they been to Miss Lizzie Borden? With their eyeless sockets, their toothless gums, their fleshless bones. These mute witnesses to the brutality of their assassin.
1: Women particularly would respond to this. The Fall River Daily posted a story under the heading, Where to Look for Your Wife. It would go on to say, The new Bedford man who comes home and finds it deserted needn't be alarmed. There has been no elopement. The dear creature is probably in the crowd of morbid females who are storming the door of the county courthouse trying to get admission to the Borden trial. Other male journalists would be less convivial towards the female trial attendees. One wrote that there were two or three very pretty girls, but a large majority are vinegar faced, sharp nosed, lean visaged, and extremely spare. Elizabeth Borden wasn't the only woman being judged and maligned by the male dominated press. So was the entire female population of New Bedford, Massachusetts.
0: But the carnival of ghastly courtroom testimony was just beginning. In a stunning coincidence, Dr. William Dolan, the medical examiner for Bristol County, had actually been strolling by the Borden house at around 11.45 a.m. on the day of the murders. He would examine the bodies and arrange to have photographs taken of them that afternoon. He then had undressed both Abby and Andrew's bodies, removed their stomachs, and placed both respectively in clean jars. All of this happening at the family home. Later, he examined the hatchets that were found in the basement, some of which appeared to have hair and blood on them. He would personally deliver the hatchets and the stomachs to Dr. Edward Wood, a professor at Harvard University, for further microscopic and forensic examination. Dolan would also send two jars of milk from the family's home just to make sure what had been suspected as food poisoning from Bad Swordfish was not, in actuality, an attempt by someone to poison the family. Dolan would also perform the August 11th autopsy at the ladies' lounge of Oak Grove Cemetery. Almost a week after the police had confiscated the bodies, he would then remove the heads and clean them, and according to his son, he conducted this procedure and the lobster pots at his own family residence. Yum.
1: Dr. Wood of Harvard, the recipient of the morbid items, would take the stand himself to reveal his forensic findings. He had found no poison in the stomachs of either Borden, nor in the jars of milk. That would quickly deem somewhat irrelevant the prosecution's accusation that Lisbeth had tried to purchase prussic acid at a nearby pharmacy two days before the murders. Whether she had attempted to purchase it or not, there was now no indication that she had indeed poisoned the family. He also noted that the different stages of digestion had undoubtedly confirmed that Abby and Andrew had been murdered an hour and a half apart. One interesting notion that was not addressed at the trial was the fact that had Andrew been killed before Abby, there is a great likelihood that Abby's family could have laid claim to Andrew's fortune. What a... Lucky coincidence for the defendant.
0: Then Dr. Wood turned to the hatchets. First of all, the hair and blood on the weapons turned out to be animal, most likely belonging to a cow. He then turned to the handleless hatchet, which the prosecution believed was the murder weapon. Journalist Julian Ralph explained, The theory of the Commonwealth is that she took the hatchet after murdering her father, broke off the handle, burned it, and then cleaned the blade, rubbed it in ashes, and put it in a box in the cellar. Dr. Wood could not confirm that this hatchet was indeed the murder weapon. Next, Dr. Frank Draper was called to the stand as a witness for the prosecution. He was a professor of legal medicine and medical examiner for Suffolk County, including Boston. He had been at the autopsy conducted by Dr. Dolan and would be considered an expert regarding the hatchet scars on the skulls. Draper would display plaster casts of the skulls on which he had marked the wound locations with ink. Luckily, it was time for a recess and it was decided that Lisbeth would be allowed to sit outside of the courtroom as the latest skull presentation proceeded. Dr. Draper resumed his testimony, but he quickly ascertained that the plaster skulls would not be enough for his next demonstration. He asked that Andrew's actual skull be brought back once again into the courtroom This time, the skull was done up in a white handkerchief. It had actually been added to keep Andrew's jaw, now unattached by skin or muzzle, to stay connected to the skull. But it didn't work. Andrew's skull was placed upon a stack of books, and the old man's jaw sagged back and forth in a grisly suggestion of speech. Journalists would further document the moment like this. Spectators caught their breath and then exhaled in a gasp that swept the courtroom like a sigh. Was Andrew trying to testify?
1: But Dr. Draper's presentation was not over. He cheerfully started slipping and sliding and fitting the blade of the handleless hatchet into the actual wounds in Andrew's skull. Occasionally, he would leave the blade sticking in it and then parade it around the courtroom. It would seemingly be an er version of the if it doesn't fit, you must acquit moment, which would come to exemplify another trial of the century 102 years later. That trial would also explode national, social, and political constructs, beliefs, and paradigms, this time not regarding gender, but race. Both trials would establish new heights of journalistic sensationalism and national obsession. That would redefine their errors and continually reinvent and deepen our own sordid and sullied relationship with the evolving power of the media. The striking similarities of these two trials are stunning, but we digress. The handleless hatchet blade would fit into Andrew's dry bony wounds, And Dr. Draper would add voluntarily that the blows could have been produced by the use of an ordinary hatchet in the hands of a woman of ordinary strength. But the defense would counter with a very effective question. The handless hatchet is not an uncommon instrument, is it? Draper agreed. It has a very general circulation, yes? After a bit of hesitation, Draper agreed again. In the end, the grisly hatchet-in-the-skull drama had not proven a single thing, at least in regards to Elizabeth Borden's guilt. Indeed, many hatchets, it could be argued, would fit and do its deadly deed.
0: And while the male players in this courtroom saga—the defense, prosecution, and judges— would be completely comfortable with such gruesome presentations and the lively discussions of removed stomachs, coagulated blood— and the differing amounts of feces in the victim's intestines. There was one subject that they all collectively felt was too terrible, too grisly to mention. To them, it was a totally unacceptable topic for a public gathering of any sort, criminal or otherwise. We must say we too have considered leaving out this aspect of the trial and evidence, as we also believe that it just may be too shocking. Too uncomfortable and too terrifying for our listeners. But here we go. We caution that the more easily disturbed listener consider skipping the next few minutes of this podcast.
1: That unmentionable subject was menstruation. We know, we know, just take a long, deep breath. Dr. Wood had not only been sent hatchets and stomachs to examine, but he had also been sent the dress Elizabeth had been wearing on the day of the murder. And he had found blood. The courtroom gasped. He continued that he'd found a tiny blood spot measuring exactly 1 of an inch on the underskirt of the dress. The defense followed up, quickly asking, could he exclude the fact that it might be natural blood? Wood said he could not. Then the defense took one step into the dark abyss. Could Dr. Wood exclude menstrual blood? No, Dr. Wood responded. He could not. That was the end of the discussion. Journalists would convey the moment to their readers this way. The defense claimed, for reasons not necessary to publish, that the blood is natural.
0: And there had been another stunning piece of evidence that the prosecution did not have the stomach to pursue immediately after the murders police found rags covered in blood and a pail in the cellar of the borden home when lizbeth was questioned about it by the police she did not answer and only referred them to dr bowen who would declare that it had been explained to him and was all right but when bridget sullivan was questioned about the bloody rags the day of the murders. She said she had not noticed the pail until that day, and it could not have been there for two days, as Lisbeth would claim, or she would have seen it and put the contents in the wash. Lisbeth herself would admit in her inquiry testimony that at the time of the murders, she had indeed had the fleas, a local euphemism for menstruation. And no, we have not yet been able to ascertain the etymological origins of this social code word, fleas. Good golly. A bloody pail of rags found in the cellar immediately after the murders would seem to have been the smoking gun evidence of which any prosecutor would have dreamed. They indeed introduced the evidence during the trial, but only in this vague way. It is agreed that the pail contains the napkins, which had been worn within a day or two by the defendant. Ordinary monthly sickness. And as to that fact, that is all we propose to put into it. We do not care to go into details. Then they dropped the subject. Along with the matter of the blood spot on Lisbeth's dress, the discussion of menstruation was simply just too much for them to handle.
1: And that is interesting also because current medical and psychological treatises about women and menstruation would claim that women were particularly susceptible to hysteria and emotional unbalance during their periods. Prominent Austrian criminal psychologist Hans Gross had argued that menstruation made women more open to forbidden and violent impulses. Gross would write, menstruation may bring women to the most horrible crimes. English Dr. Henry McNaughton argued that the relation of a disorder to menstruation to any criminal act ought to be taken into consideration in determining the responsibility of the woman. These theories seem tailor-made for the prosecution to argue a biological and psychological basis for Elizabeth Borden's guilt. But nope, Medical expert after medical expert would be called to the stand by the prosecution, but not one was called to testify to the most modern of medical and criminologist treatises about women, violence, and menstruation. As they stated, they did not care to go into the details. Although imprisoned by the suffocating gender restrictions of her era, in that way and in many other ways, the very fact that Elizabeth Borden was a woman would save her.
0: Just over two weeks after the trial had began on June 20th, 1893, the jury, composed of 11 white men, mostly farmers, somberly re-entered the courtroom with their verdict, only 90 minutes after they had started their deliberations. It was said that the silence in the courtroom had instantly become impressive and fearful. Another commentator would say, at no time during the trial, has the prisoner's most preternatural courage so appalled the spectators as at this sublime moment of her entry back into the courtroom to hear her doom. Elizabeth Borden took her seat, turned her face towards the jury foreman as Judge Dewey asked them for the verdict. The courtroom held its breath. Not guilty. It was unanimous. The courtroom erupted into a collective, deafening cheer. Elizabeth seemed to melt back into her chair. Then, she put her face into her hands and sobbed. Members of the jury would later attest to the fact that it had only taken them one hour to reach their verdict, and they simply waited another 30 minutes as not to appear too impulsive in such a weighty decision and as a matter of courtesy to the district attorney. The truth of the matter was, in the end, this jury of husbands and fathers could not possibly have admitted that a woman like Lisbeth Borden could have committed such a horrible crime against her parents. A verdict of guilty would have fractured and made unacceptably fragile and vulnerable their own absolute, unshakable, incontrovertible masculine notions of domination at the head of their own families. Every man on that jury had at least these two things, a daughter and or a wife and a hatchet.
1: The jury climbed out of their box and formed a single line to greet the woman whose fate they had held in their hands. Elizabeth would receive each and every one of the jurors and take those hands warmly in her own. As it said, with a fresh sparkle of her eyes and a look so grateful and kindly that the heart of every man among them must have been touched." She said virtually nothing to the press. Lisbeth turned to Emma and said, I want to go home. Lisbeth Borden was now free, more free than she had ever been in her entire life. Lisbeth and Emma would be the sole inheritors of their father's
0: hefty fortune. It was over. Lisbeth could have literally chosen to live anywhere in the world she wished but she chose instead to live in Fall River for the rest of her life. And it was a curious choice, especially as the Fall River residents certainly hadn't been as supportive of Elizabeth during her trial as were the strangers at the courtroom in New Bedford. She would continue to be shunned by the elite and wealthy of Fall River and, in time, would soon even find herself unwelcome at her congregational church to which she had attended for years. The tide of public opinion would completely turn, and most in Fall River would believe she was actually guilty of the murders. As a response, she would discontinue her charitable work, and ignore the growing social coldness to which she had so long become accustomed. Whether it was a case of staying in Fall River because it was so familiar, or whether it was her iron-willed determination to make it very clear that she would not be run out of town, She wasn't going anywhere, except away from the house on 2nd Street. Just several months after her acquittal, Lisbeth and Emma moved to 306 French Street, literally the very top of the hill where they had always wanted to be. There, they purchased a 4,000-square-foot home with 14 rooms, including seven bedrooms, five bathrooms, and six fireplaces that had been built in 1897. It also came with electric lights and central heating with individual room radiators. All of the extravagances their father had denied them. They paid $13,000 for it and Lisbeth would name it Maplecroft and then christen the home as their own by having the name carved into the front steps However, Lisbeth and Emma would hang on to the 2nd Street House, as a rental property, until 1916. Lisbeth would not only change her residence, but also her lifestyle. An avid lover of the theater, she would travel often to Boston and New York to take in the latest productions and befriend the theatrical community she grew to love. She had few, if any, friends in Fall River, and that was okay. She'd make new ones, she would begin throwing lavish parties for her performer friends at Maplecroft. Grand soirees that would last until the middle of the night, complete with small orchestras or lively bands, expensive crystal, and bottomless banquets of food and drink. They loved her.
1: Some 11 years after her acquittal, Lisbeth made the acquaintance of actress Nance O'Neill in 1904 at a summer resort near Lynn, Massachusetts, or so the story goes. By some accounts, O'Neill was known as a notorious lesbian in theater circles, and by all accounts, Lisbeth became undeniably smitten. O'Neill had garnered much fame as a thespian, and she was regarded as one of the finest actresses on the East Coast. The New York Times would say of O'Neill, "...there is no actress on the stage at present who has a more remarkable gift for emotional expression, nor is there a single one who has been more lavishly endowed by nature with the physical gifts which enter into the equipment of great actresses. Miss O'Neill has a kind of massive beauty, and she is not without much natural grace. Her voice is a splendid organ, rich and deep, with plenty of color and sweetness. Well, no wonder Lisbeth fell. And the fact that Nance had left her family home at 19 to escape her strict and religious father to make her own way in the world must have enthralled Lisbeth. Lisbeth began throwing even more extravagant parties in honor of Nance and her acting ensemble, with Lisbeth often sending a carriage to Boston or Providence to pick up Nance and bring her to Mabelcroft. Then O'Neill began visiting privately. After a particularly grueling tour, Nance came to stay with Elizabeth to recoup. It would be a long-term stay, and essentially, for all intents and purposes, Nance O'Neill now lived with Lisbeth who could offer the actress a comfortable, safe, and luxurious life with her there at Maplecroft. Then, the following article ran in a Fall River newspaper on June 6, 1905. We present the article here in its entirety.
0: Sisters estranged over Nance O'Neill. Her entertainment causes quarrel between Lizzie and Emma Borden. The separation of Lizzie and Emma Borden of this city has aroused no little attention in this community, owing to the notoriety attained by the sisters 13 years ago when Lizzie A. Borden was acquitted after a long and sensational trial for the murder of her father and mother. It was impossible to get a statement from Lizzie Borden regarding the quarrel with her sister, but the trouble originated from some disagreement during the winter after Lizzie Borden had given a dinner and entertainment at the Borden home to Nance O'Neill and her company. Lizzie Borden is an intimate friend of Miss O'Neill, whose friendship she is said to have formed last summer at a summer resort near Boston. On the night of the entertainment for Miss O'Neill, the company was playing at the Academy of Music in this city, and at the close of the performance, Miss Borden's carriage was waiting at the door, and Miss O'Neill was taken to the Borden home, where the entire company later gathered. Later in the season, Miss O'Neill and her company came here again, and Miss Borden again entertained the actress at her home this time alone and quietly, as Miss O'Neill was ill at the time from overwork. Emma Borden had several times reproved her sister for her frivolity. All sorts of reasons for the quarrel between the sisters have been afloat, but the best-founded ones involve the name of Miss Nance O'Neill. It is reported that Miss Lizzie Borden is to write a play for Miss O'Neill, but Miss Borden declines to either affirm or deny the rumor.
1: Emma Borden indeed moved out of Maplecroft and never saw Elizabeth again for the rest of their lives. Sometime later, Emma would give an interview to the Boston Sunday Post where she said, The happenings at French Street House that caused me to leave, I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. Then, before taking action, I consulted the Reverend A.E. Buck, After carefully listening to my story, he said it was imperative that I should make my home elsewhere. I do not expect ever to set foot on the place while she lives. Think about it. Together they had made it through the gruesome death of their parents, the grueling trial, and then finally ended up living out their wildest dreams at Mabelcroft. What could have possibly made Emma leave and both sisters to refuse the presence of each other for the 22 years that remained of their lives? And why had Emma needed to take counsel with a minister before she decided to leave? This to us is very compelling evidence that Emma left because she could not tolerate her sister having a lesbian affair. It all makes perfect sense. And if one is to seriously contemplate whether or not Elizabeth Borden was a lesbian, the circumstances of Emma's permanent departure from Mabelcroft certainly fit the template for family members disowning and turning their backs on their queer family members. And Emma would not just move down the street. She would relocate all the way to New Hampshire. Having a sister believed to be her parents' murderer would not drive Emma from Fall River. Having a lesbian sister
0: would. We had traveled a very long way to get to talk with Elizabeth, And this was the real reason we came to talk with her. Um,
1: so, let me ask you this. You said that at the end of your life, you and Emma were estranged. Obviously, uh, you thought of Emma as a mother figure. You relied upon Emma. And that, you know, her being... The two of you being, um, uh, what's the word, separated at the end of your life. Uh, Now, let me ask a question just so I understand clearly. So you and Emma initially lived together at Maplecroft, yes? Yeah, okay. Okay. All right, can you straighten out for me real quick? Straighten out there for me. Go to a neutral position so that we can talk a little bit more. Straight out for me so that I understand your answers to your questions. I'm gonna ask you something very directly. Was there a specific reason that Emma left the house and would no longer live with you. She moved out. That don't be coy, please. Oops. Let's do it again. I'm a little shaky from the, the driving. <coughs> Let's try it this way. Please don't be coy. Um, if you don't want to answer, don't answer but please answer, you know, in a full yes or no if you could, if you're going to answer the question. I also know that not every question has a yes or no answer. So I want to keep that in mind, too. But be as direct as you can, please. Um, did Emma move out for a specific reason? Yes. Yes. That is a great answer. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, man, you're moving them now. You're a pro. <laughs> Fantastic. Let me ask you. And if this is too personal, you don't have to answer. But if you share this with you, I'll share... If you share this with us, I'll share something about Shane and I with you. Um, Did Emma's leaving have something to do with your friend Nance O'Neill?
0: Yes.
1: Very emphatic, yes. Neutral position out in front of me. Yes and no. Okay. While you're moving these rods out to a neutral position, I'm gonna tell you something. I'm not presuming anything at the moment, but I want you to know that Shane and I, we, I am a woman who loves other women romantically, and Shane is a man who loves other men romantically and sexually, and I like women romantically and sexually. I don't know what they were called in your time. They were called gay in my time and queer in my time and all of those things. Um, so um, did you have, and again, if this is personal, please, I, I, I want to understand this so we can share it and have people understand. don't want to exploit you in any way. Did you have a sexual and romantic relationship with Nance O'Neill? Yes. Yes. Wow. Emphatic. somebody wants to talk, you got it. Elizabeth, I cannot thank you for trusting us enough to tell us that. Again, um, we, we understand. We are, um, have had relationships exactly like you, so... Did Emma leave because she knew that you were having a romantic and sexual relationship with Nance O'Neill? Yes. 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 I am so sorry, you know. Our community, and we have a lot of us now, um, many of our families end up separating because they won't accept us. So we completely understand, and we understand how painful Very painful that might be. Um, So, again, being very personal, um, and I will share some more personal stuff with you after we talk. Um, Were you in love with Nance O'Neill? Yes, emphatic. Bang on my knuckles, emphatic. Fantastic. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was just a situation. Um, that was difficult. Um, d- did Nance leave because of the stress and these difficulties? Yes. Mm, mostly. Mostly. Straighten out for me if you would. Thank you. Thank you. Mm, yes and no. yes and no. I hate to say it, but we heard today that you can often be, and I'm saying this to be funny, you can often be cagey about your answers, but I have a feeling that what you're trying to tell us is these aren't straight yes and no questions and we're going to give you an opportunity here in a little bit with another gadget to be a little bit more straightforward with us. Let me ask you this, again, only if you want to answer. Did you have a sexual and romantic relationship with a woman before Nance O'Neill ever happened? Did you? Hmm. 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 Maybe some kind of a relationship? Let me ask you this right now, let me ask you this. Were you in love with any other women before Mm -hmm. Nance O'Neill? Yes, okay. So it may have been somewhat unrequited love, I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Okay, let me ask you this. Did you have romantic relationships with a woman after Nance O'Neill? Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, straighten out for me. We'll continue to talk. And I'm going to give my arms a break for a second. And I'm going to tell you some other. I'm not sure if you're aware of it right now. But about five years ago. Um, is that too much? They're giving it to her, Um, the Supreme Court of the United States said that men could marry men and women could marry women. Um, and I'll share something with you about me. So um, I got married uh, to a woman um, a couple of years ago, um, a Methodist minister at that, and um, it didn't work out either. So there's nothing... To be ashamed about it um, not working out. So the really cool thing is, not only can lesbians get married now, but they can also get divorced.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just to join in the club, I once married a woman and also divorced her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, Lizzie. See, Elizabeth. We're all just we're all confused. (laughs) people doing the very best we can and we fall in love and we fall out of love and um, you know we're just trying to get along and I suspect more than anything that's what you were trying to do and you were trying to pave your way with a new life and trying to live the life you wanted to lead the authentic life living on the hill entertaining, um, entertaining interesting people actors and writers and uh, musicians and this is where um, you always wanted to be and ultimately um, you took in the animals, the animals too. And I think it's just amazing that um, you kind of ended up being, I think, maybe let me ask you, did you kind of end up living the life that you had always wanted? Yes. Very much so. Yes. Very much so. That is amazing. Congratulations. Uh, that is just fantastic.
0: Wow. Well, there you have it. From what we believe to be Elizabeth herself, it was a stunning moment for us. Nance O'Neill would move out of Maplecroft a year later, and there is no evidence that they ever saw each other again. However. After this, according to an article by author Barbara Braid, it has been long rumored that Elizabeth A. Borden was officially named as the lesbian lover of the wife of a Fall River man who sought divorce. It seems, however, that the court case was dismissed and any existing records have not survived. But also, Braid would continue saying, another clue that would provide grounds for perceiving Lizzie as a lesbian is her apparent friendship with Sarah Orne Jewett and the latter's partner, Annie Fields, which Alice Morris describes in her autobiography. This might show that Lizzie had most likely found her way into Boston's most elite network of lesbians. But whatever happened after Nance left, Lisbeth would indeed grow more isolated, but she made the best of it and became close to her house staff and their children becoming loved by them as Auntie Borden, as she lavished many gifts, parties, birthday, and Christmas gifts upon them. Elizabeth often gave cookies and milk to the neighborhood children, who found her gentle and kind. Then she would start taking in the animals, all of the cats and dogs she could find.
1: On June 1st, 1927, Elizabeth Borden died, alone, of pneumonia at Maplecroft, She was 67 years old. Incredibly, Emma, who was 10 years older than Lisbeth, would die in New Hampshire just nine days after her sister from nephritis or kidney disease. She would also take a brutal fall down the stairs of her nursing home on the exact evening that Lisbeth died. They may not have seen each other in 22 years, but it seems even in death, they were still somehow connected. Both sisters would be buried at their family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery next to their father, their stepmother, and their infant sister. Elizabeth's grave would be bricked up from the moment she was buried to prevent intrusion by morbid souvenir seekers. In the end, one might say that the Borden family would once again end up sharing the same close intimate sleeping quarters, just as they had done in life with such disastrous consequences. But this time, forever. Emma would leave Lisbeth $30,000 in her will. At the time of her own death, she was not aware that Lisbeth had already passed. Lisbeth left her dear sister nothing. She instead would give $500 in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave and the bulk of her still hefty fortune to the Fall River Society Animal Rescue League. She gave it all away to the cats and the dogs. What a lesbian thing to do.
0: And in the end, you all must be wondering whether or not we believe she did it. Well, we do. We also believe that she pulled it off with Bridget Sullivan as her co-conspirator. If Lisbeth did kill her parents, there is no way that Bridget could not have known. One word from Lisbeth would have sent her to the gallows, and there is no doubt she understood that. She had no choice but to collaborate. During the many discussions of this trial over the years, some have noted that two doctors already lived right next door to the Borden house, one Irish and one French Canadian, both Catholic. It has been surmised that Elizabeth's own xenophobia was the reason that she sent Bridget for the Protestant family physician, Dr. Bowen, some several blocks away. We disagree. By sending Bridget to get Dr. Bowen, it gave her a reason to at least be gone for a short time from the house and get rid of Lisbeth's clothing and or the real murder weapon. Coincidentally or not, Dr. Bowen was not at home by the time Bridget reached his house, and it was said she waited for him. That gave her even more time. All of Fall River was surrounded by water, and a short detour by Bridget could have easily ridded them both of the most incriminating of evidence. A pail of bloody rags could not have been gotten rid of quite so easily.
1: We also contend that this might have simply been a crime of passion. With the rage Lisbeth must have felt after overhearing the conversation between Uncle John and her parents, it might have been that Lisbeth confronted Abby while she was making the bed in the guest room about Andrew's decision regarding their inheritance. One can only imagine if Abby had said something dismissive or provocative, such as, Well, if you don't like it, go get married. Abby herself had been 37 when she'd married Andrew, five years older than Lisbeth was at that time. That might have done it. Because we offer this. Abby was killed with 19 blows. 19 blows! That is not just an act of killing. That is an act of pure rage. One can imagine Bridget running into the room with a bloody Lisbeth standing over a dead Abby Borden. From that moment, Bridget and Lisbeth would be bound together. Whether it was loyalty to Lisbeth or the fact that Lisbeth could, with one word, send Bridget to the gallows, we'll never know. Then, at that point, Lisbeth would have had no choice but to also kill her father when he came home unexpectedly. There would be no way to explain to him why Abby's dead body was laying on the floor in the second floor guest room. He was quite aware of the deep animosity Lisbeth had for Abby he would know she had done it. We actually believe this scenario is more likely than a premeditated murder plot by Lisbeth herself. So after talking with Lisbeth all evening, we decided to press our luck just a little bit and ask her directly about the murders. Lisbeth herself would confirm our suspicions. I just, before we go, and again, we didn't come here to talk with you about the murders, But I would like to throw one thing out there before we go that we think maybe it's Shane and ours. Shane and my... I'm sorry, it's been a long day. Shane and my idea about what happened. Would you mind me conjecturing? Yes, okay, fine. Um... You know... Here's what we think. We think... That you did indeed, um, maybe in a moment of rage, um, go in and kill your stepmother. And that Bridget saw you do this. Um, Therefore, you made it very clear to her that, you know, no one was going to believe her, more or less, as an Irish-American immigrant um, taking on a Borden family. Um, let me ask you very, very plainly. Did Bridget know that you had murdered Abby? Yes. A somewhat reluctant yes. <laughs> Straightforward for me, if you would. Straightforward. Straightforward, please. If you don't mind talking about this. No. (laughs) Is that no, you don't want to talk? No.
0: And she would not say another word. After the trial, Bridget would move as far away as she could from Lisbeth and Fall River. She would visit Ireland to see her family and supposedly stocked up the family farm with horses, cows, pigs, chickens, and sheep. She would then return to the US and relocate to Montana, far beyond the hooks of the Borden family and even beyond the arm of the law. Where would she possibly have gotten all of the money to do this? Well, on her deathbed in Anaconda, Montana, in 1947, she called a dear friend or sister, it's not entirely clear, to her bedside and told her that she had something important to confess. She admitted that Lisbeth had indeed given her money and that she had been very fond of Lisbeth. She also confessed that she had changed her testimony to protect Lisbeth and wasn't as forthcoming and honest and her testimony, as she should have been. This information was first reported in the book Lizzie Borden, The Untold Story, by Edwin D. Radden, published in 1961. Historians and trial aficionados seem to be split as to its ultimate veracity. Oh, and do we believe that Lizbeth was queer? We say guilty, 100%.
1: Some years before she died, Lisbeth had this poem carved into a mantelpiece in Mabelcroft. Old-time friends and twilight plays And starry nights and sunny days Come trooping up the misty ways When my fire burns low.
0: And so, at the end of our long and extraordinary evening in the bedroom suite of two extremely remarkable sisters, we ourselves couldn't help but also wax a bit lyrical,
1: and we go out and talk to a lot of entities. There are places where things have happened that are extreme and I think energy's still there. Your energy's still here. Emma. And here we are in your rooms, like... it's pretty incredible. I was standing over there by the window a few minutes ago thinking, I bet you looked out this window. You can see Jupiter tonight, one of the stars. I'm like, wow. I bet Elizabeth stood here at the window and looked up at these stars too and wondered what her fate would be. Thanks so much for listening. We also want to acknowledge author Cara Robertson in her book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, of which we relied on heavily for much of the facts presented here in these episodes. Robertson's vast research and objective documentation of the Borden story has quickly made this the quintessential book regarding the subject, and we thank her for it.
0: Join us again on November 22nd for a special conversation on Lizzie Borden with Lee from the History is Gay podcast. Here's a quick preview. She had basically a giant dildo. There's there's like in in the like uh in the um in the legal proceedings they talk about this like this this leather uh leather and cotton stuffed instrument that was, mind you, the size of an arm, is what they said. Um yeah, so like like one of my favorite favorite editing notes I've ever taken when I was like going through and editing an episode is I just have a note in that uh, Audacity file that just says Katarina Hetseldorfer and her arm-sized dildo. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a fellow weirdo and leave a review.